Father in heaven, we are a people this morning full of praise. When we consider this outrageous thing that you have done in the middle of history, you yourself taking on human flesh. Lord, what does that say about your um, your view of material existence? Lord, that you would take on flesh like this and then live to... Uh, Show us your kingdom and teach the kingdom and then go to the cross as you did, Lord Jesus, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. And then, Lord, to rise from the dead, to burst the bonds of death as you did. And so that we, as your people, no longer need to fear death. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have done. And then ascending to the Father's right hand in glory, and we know, Lord, that you are there right now physically with the wounds still on your hands and your feet and your side, and that, Lord, you will come again in glory one day. We pray, make it soon, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, come again. Lord, now as we look into the things of your word, we pray your Spirit's help. Uh, I pray, Lord, that you would assist me to proclaim and that you would also assist each hearer, that we would listen well, and having listened, that we would apply this word, that we would be not just hearers but doers of your word. And, Lord God, that you would bless and that you would restore and that you would encourage whatever it is your pleasure to do here this morning. We pray these things in the name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, for the vast majority of Easter Sundays that I have been privileged to preach over the years, my focus normally has been on the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. The event itself, Easter, and the meaning and the ramifications of the event. This year the Lord has led me to approach the Easter sermon from a bit of a different angle. And this morning I am admittedly indebted uh, to a a great Canadian preacher named Daryl Johnson who first alerted me in one of the sermons that he preached to many of the truths that we will focus on this morning. So credit goes to Daryl Johnson there. But we want to zero in this morning on an event that happened after Jesus was resurrected, but before he ascended into heaven. During that time when he remained on the earth prior to the time of his ascension. And the event I'm speaking of is one that shows us the breathtaking power of the risen Christ in the life of one of his disciples. And my hope is that in looking at this event, we will leave here uh, later today with increased confidence in the risen Lord and more love to him for his grace and for his power. But we begin this morning with what I would call appetizer events that lead up to the main event. We begin in John chapter 18, verses 10 and 11, and we encourage you, to have a Bible open in front of you. John chapter 18, verses 10 and 11. So during the moment when Judas and company came around 
to arrest Jesus in the time just prior to the cross, Peter decided in that moment of the arrest, in an an uncontrolled moment of hot-headed zeal, Peter decided to cut off the right ear of the high priest's servant, an action that earned Peter the rebuke of Jesus. Now, friends, listen. If this very day I decided to cut off somebody's ear, surely the police would get involved, right? Cutting off an ear is a very serious thing. It's a criminal thing. Well, right after that ear-slicing incident, John then tells us that the now-arrested Jesus was led to Annas. Annas was Caiaphas' father-in-law. Jesus was led to Annas to be interrogated. And Peter and another disciple followed along. But before we're given the details as to what happened during that interrogation of Jesus, we get verses 15 through 18, which focus again on the ear cutter, Peter, and on this little encounter that he has with the female doorkeeper of the courtyard. The woman asks Peter, hey, aren't you, yeah, you're, you're one of Jesus' disciples, And Peter answers famously, I am not. And there we have the first of Peter's three denials of Jesus. Now, friends, the difference between Jesus, who is now inside the building with the Jewish officials about to be questioned, the difference between him and Peter, who is standing outside the building being questioned by the female doorkeeper, is that Peter had a reason to feel guilty. Jesus, for his part, was unjustifiably arrested as a totally innocent man. Peter was no doubt nervous in this moment that maybe there was a warrant out for his arrest because he had just cut off a guy's ear. Peter deserved to be arrested while Jesus did not. Peter is nervous. And so Peter says to the girl, nervously and falsely he says, no, I don't know, Jesus. You you can't place me with Jesus in that location where the ear was cut off. It wasn't me. This is a case of mistaken identity. Incidentally, friends, this is the same Peter who only five chapters back in John 13, 37, had exclaimed to Jesus, Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. Now, we're still warming up to the main event this morning. And in our warm-up, I want us to behold now Peter's literal warm-up. Let's look closely and carefully at verse 18 of John 18. Right after that first denial of Peter, 
We're given this curious little narrative piece about the weather and what the people were doing to deal with the weather. Verse 18 tells us that the servants and officers had gone ahead and they'd made an anthracia in Greek, a charcoal fire. They'd made this anthracia, this charcoal fire, because in the time when these events were taking place, it was March or April in Israel, and evenings got a little chilly. They'd gathered around that anthracia, that charcoal fire, and as it glowed away there, yellow and orange and toasty, they drew close to it, and they extended their hands toward it, and shivering started to disappear, and they felt that warm feeling that you feel when you're gathered around a fire. And the text tells us very explicitly and conspicuously that Peter was there around that anthracia, that charcoal fire, warming himself along with the others. Peter was holding cold fingers out toward the fire and feeling the warmth on his face and staring, mesmerized like we tend to do, into the coals of that fire. Going forward through John 18, we then get verses 19 through 24 which is a switch of scenes now to the interrogation of Jesus. The officials question Jesus and they strike Jesus physically. And then Jesus is whisked away to where Caiaphas is. All the while, Peter is still beating the chill by standing close to that charcoal fire. Verse 25 Now, Simon Peter was standing and, what? Warming himself. And then somebody around that fire pipes up and says to Peter, you also are not one of Jesus' disciples, are you? And again, for the second time now, Peter denies Jesus. Peter says, I am not one of Jesus' disciples. In Matthew's version of Peter's denials, Matthew says that the second denial was voiced with an oath. In other words, as Peter denied for the second time his Lord Jesus, he likely said something like, God is my witness. I am not one of this man's disciples. Now, if you've ever had a real failure of nerve like I have, you can certainly relate to Peter here. Let's not distance ourselves too much from him or the jokes on us. Amen? But I think Peter almost collapses in the next part of this story out of sheer fear. Notice that verse 26 is careful to point out that the next person to question Peter is a relative of the guy whose ear Peter had sliced off. 
This family member of the wounded man now looks at Peter around that charcoal fire and he says to Peter, hey, didn't I see you in the garden with Jesus? And Peter's heart is pounding out of his chest. Peter denies Jesus for the third time now. It was all simply too much for Peter. And the rooster crows. And in Matthew's version of this story, he tells us that at this point, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Peter's eyes poured tears, and with his voice, he was wailing away. And why? Because in this instant, friends, Peter recognized that what Jesus had prophesied was true. Jesus had said that a rooster would crow and that Peter would deny Jesus three times. Peter realized in this moment his failure, his cowardly betrayal of the one he loved. Peter felt shame in this moment. And Peter was anguished about himself. Could there be any remedy? Could there be a do-over of some kind? A restoration of some kind? Was, Was everything lost? Is there hope for you and I when we bitterly Consider the failings and the shortcomings and the mistakes that we have made in our past. Well, as we move forward in our story in John's Gospel, we have John chapter 19. John 19 is the Good Friday chapter in John's Gospel. We've just celebrated Good Friday. John 19 records the death of and burial of Jesus. And then John 20 is the Easter Sunday chapter of John's Gospel. John 20 is where the text shouts, He is risen. God raised His Son from the dead. God has gone beyond the bounds of our rationality. Amen? God has done this thing in history that most people refuse to believe. He has smashed death with a death blow square in the chops. Jesus is risen. Amen? Back to Peter. I imagine that after his three denials, Peter had taken some time to reflect painfully on his whole adventure with Jesus. From the start of that adventure to the present painful moment that followed his denials, Peter remembered how it had all begun. Luke 5 tells the story. Back then, Peter had been washing his nets He was a fisherman washing his nets down by the lake of Gennesaret, otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee. They'd spent all night fishing, 
in the Sea of Galilee, but they hadn't even caught a rubber boot, let alone a fish. And then this Jesus had come along, and he'd given this weird instruction. Jesus had said, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Peter had done as Jesus instructed, and lo and behold, they had caught so many fish that the nets were threatening to break because of the weight. It had been marvelous. Peter remembered that initial moment with Jesus very fondly, even now in his remorse over his denials of Jesus. Peter remembered the Sea of Galilee, no luck fishing, the weird instruction of Jesus, and then an abundance of fish. That's where it had all began with him and Jesus. Let's go finally to John 21, which is where we want to camp for the rest of the morning. This is now the main event that we've been warming up to and preparing for this morning. Jesus is risen. Jesus has conquered death. Jesus came out of the tomb. And now we're a little over a week after the resurrection, and we are about 11 or 12 days after that fateful Thursday when Peter had denied his Lord. John 21.1 puts us at the Sea of Tiberias, otherwise known as the Sea of Galilee. The same place where it had all begun for Peter in his relationship with Jesus. In verse 3, Peter announces to his buddies, I'm going fishing. And they all go out into the boat, and they fish all night, but they don't even catch a rubber boot, let alone a fish. Verse 4, as day was breaking, it's a new day, Jesus stood on shore. The now risen Jesus Christ, who had just freshly broken the bonds of death, he stood there on that shore. And now the risen Jesus, in verse 6, gives Peter and the others a weird instruction. Jesus says, cast the the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some fish. Then, you guessed it, what happens? They end up with an abundance of fish in their nets. Verse 6 says that there were so many fish in that net that they were not able to haul it in. Does this story sound familiar? What's happening here in John 21? The scene is a recapitulation or a redo of that encounter that Peter had had with Jesus, that in Luke's gospel is the very first encounter. With the scene repeating itself here after the resurrection of Jesus, it's like, friends, a reset button 
of some kind has been pushed for Peter. There's a deja vu feeling here. Peter has been here before. It's back to the beginning again in some strange way. Well, Peter, being Peter, is so excited about Jesus, about the risen Jesus and everything that was happening now, that Peter does what? He throws himself, fully clothed, into the sea and swims to shore. And then, friends, we have verse 9. When Peter and the others come to the shore, what's the first thing they see on the shore? They see an anthracia, a charcoal fire. Who has built this charcoal fire? The risen Jesus Christ has built this charcoal fire, and the risen Jesus Christ has laid out on it fish and bread. Now get this before we go any further. The Greek word anthrakia, charcoal fire, is used only two times in the entire New Testament. Here at John 21.9 and back at John 18.18 where Peter had been warming himself around the charcoal fire as he denied his Lord Jesus. Those are the only two instances of this Greek word in the entire New Testament. There is another Greek word that's used much more commonly in the New Testament that we translate into English as fire. But this word, anthracia, charcoal fire, is used only here in John 21.9 and in John 18.18. There's something to this with this very strategic use of this word, the Gospel writer John wants us to connect Peter's three denials of Jesus around that earlier charcoal fire with this new charcoal fire that Jesus has put together on the beach of the Sea of Galilee. Now, let's think about this for a moment. Fire in the Bible is symbolic of several things. But one of the main things is the idea of refining or purifying. In Numbers 31, 22, and 23, for example, several types of metal are purified in fire. Dross is burnt off the metals in the fire. And in Malachi 3, we have the famous mention of the refiner's fire. And then, of course, in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, we have the seraphim touching the the prophet Isaiah's lips with a burning coal that serves to purify Isaiah himself. Isaiah's sin is atoned for and his guilt is taken away in that moment. So we have this connection in the Bible between fire and purification, even the purification of people. And of course, there were other also also very significant moments in the Bible of personal encounter with God 
That happened around the presence of fire. For example, Moses encountered God in what kind of a bush? A burning bush. And God also descended on Mount Sinai in fire, according to Exodus 19.18. Jesus greets Peter on the shore with a fire. Could it be, I'm just asking the question, could it be that this will be a significant encounter with God that Peter will now have on this shore? Could it be that some purification or some refining will happen in Peter's life around this charcoal fire? In John 21, 12, The risen Jesus invites his disciples to come and eat the breakfast that he's prepared there on the shore. Now, friends, just think of this for a moment. It is nothing short of astonishing to consider that the one who only recently had been raised from the dead in power would now serve breakfast like this to his disciples. But then that's the pattern of our God, is it not? feeding his people with manna and quail in the wilderness, serving the 5,000 with five loaves and two fish, serving his very life up as a ransom for many, and now here on the beach serving his disciples. Friends, I hope you know we serve a God who serves By verse 15, breakfast is over. All that remains are a few remnants of fish skin, some fish skeletons, and some ancient Near Eastern Tim Hortons cups. Everybody's had their fill, and now with that charcoal fire that Jesus had made probably still burning away in the midst Jesus looks over at Peter. I like to think from across the fire, he looks over at Peter. And Jesus wants to talk to Peter. And I like to imagine here Peter now with his belly full after breakfast. Maybe he's sitting there staring into that charcoal fire that Jesus had made. Maybe being in the presence of Jesus, the risen Jesus like this, Peter feels shame for what he had done. Maybe in the glow of this fire, he tries not to make eye contact with Jesus out of a sense of shame. For 11 or 12 days now since that fateful Thursday, every time Peter would have seen a charcoal fire in and around the environs of Jerusalem, it would have sparked pain in Peter because a charcoal fire had been so vividly connected to his denials of Jesus. Peter had no doubt been dwelling on that night when he had denied Jesus. In his mind's eye, he remembered the glow of the embers in that fire and the heat from the fire and how it had felt on his cheeks and on his hands. And try as he might, he couldn't forget those conversations, those conversations where three times he had wimped out under pressure 
and had turned his back on his Lord. Now here he was on the beach being served by the risen Christ. And friends, I am convinced that Jesus set up this anthracia, this charcoal fire, for more than the purpose of simply cooking fish and warming bread. Jesus wanted Peter to connect this fire with the other fire on the night when Peter denied Jesus. And now Jesus is going to do something with Peter around this new fire that is truly amazing and so blessed. Let's go back to John 21:15. As the embers of the fire burn down after breakfast, the risen Jesus now says to Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now notice here that instead of using the name Peter, Jesus uses the name Simon, son of John. See, before Jesus had renamed him as Peter, this guy had been known as Simon, son of John. By using this name here, Simon, son of John, Jesus is going back to the time before Peter became Peter. This is another reset moment, isn't it? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, what does Jesus mean when he asks, do you love me more than these? Does Jesus mean, do you, Peter, love me, Jesus, more than you love these other men who are seated here around this fire? Do you love me with a greater affection than you love these other friends of ours? Maybe that's what Jesus means. Or another option here is that Jesus means, do you, Peter, love me more than these fish, these boats, these nets, this career of yours? Maybe. Still another option here is, do you, Peter, love me more than these other disciples love me? Is your love for me greater, do you think, Peter, than the love that these other disciples have for me? Well, friends, whichever option we take with this question of Jesus, one thing is crystal clear. Jesus is probing the nature and the level of Peter's affection for him, and Peter responds at the end of verse 15 with, Yes, Lord. You know that I love you. I wonder if Peter's voice was quavering a little bit when he said that. And Jesus replies, feed my lambs. Jesus here gives Peter a shepherding commission, a pastoral commission. Feed my lambs. That is, Peter, you are to give spiritual nourishment to my flock. Verse 16, a second time, Jesus says to Peter, beside that charcoal fire, 
Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter responds in kind again, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. And Jesus says to Peter, tend my sheep. That is, care for believers in my flock. And then verse 17, now for a third time, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And then, friends, the text says something pretty interesting here. Notice, it says that now with this third round of questioning from Jesus, Peter became grieved. The Greek word translated grieved here is a pain word. Peter was in pain with this third question from Jesus. He was in some emotional distress now. He said to Jesus, I think with some exasperation in his voice, he said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. The question is, what was it about this third question that got to Peter so much and caused him to have this emotional reaction? I think the answer is that Peter caught on here He caught on. And when he did, he got emotional, quite emotional about it. I get it, Jesus. You set up this charcoal fire on purpose to bring my mind right back to the night when I denied you. And then you questioned my love for you three times because I denied you. Three times. I get it, Jesus. With, with this charcoal fire that matches the fire at Annas's place and with these three questions that match my three denials, you want me, Jesus, to face my failures head on, don't you? You want me to look square in the face of my brokenness so that you can put me back together. And you've begun, Lord, to put me back together by giving me this commission that I don't deserve in any way, shape, or form after how I've denied you this commission to feed your sheep and tend your lambs. Now, friends, notice at the end of verse 19, Jesus goes, blessed Jesus, goes further in grace and mercy. Toward Peter. Jesus says to Peter two words after Jesus predicts how Peter will die crucified. Jesus says to Peter two words that I think would have just completely floored Peter in this moment. The two words that Jesus says to Peter at the end of verse 19 are the same two words that were the very first words that Jesus ever said to Peter. The words... Follow me. How's that for a reset? Let's start over, Peter. Follow me. What's the risen Jesus doing for Peter around that charcoal fire on the beach? The risen Jesus, friends, and I want you to listen carefully, is resurrecting Peter. The risen Jesus is rehabilitating Peter. Jesus is restoring 
and resetting Peter and giving Peter another chance. Jesus was not finished with Peter despite Peter's mess-ups. Jesus did not give up on Peter despite the fact that Peter had so obviously let Jesus down. Jesus, you see, pursued Peter and Jesus provided the setting and he provided the opportunity for Peter to reaffirm his love for Jesus three times. And now, friends, the charcoal fire would forever become a hopeful sight for Peter whenever he saw it instead of one that caused him great anxiety. I like what Paul Beasley Murray says as he comments on this passage. He says this, The good news of the gospel is that in Jesus there is always a new beginning. Amen? It doesn't matter who we are or what we have done. In Jesus we can always begin again. Amen. As we wrap this up this morning, my friend, can I ask you, I want you to take this question personally. Do you have a charcoal fire in your life that you are ashamed of? What is your charcoal fire? A time, perhaps, when you denied the Lord. An event where you scorned him, or a moment or a season in your life that you are still dwelling on when you walked away from him. Is there a charcoal fire back there somewhere that you regret? A charcoal fire that still plagues you, some word or action or event that that, that you think, if only I could have it back, surely I would change it. I stand before you on this Easter morning declaring to you that the risen Jesus, listen, the risen Jesus is sitting with you right now across from that charcoal fire of yours. He comes pursuing you as you sit in shame. And as you sit in fear, He pursues you and He comes with forgiveness for your sin and restoration for your unfaithfulness. His is resurrection power, and with it, He wills to restore and renew you like He did with Peter. Now, the first step is to be sure that you know the risen Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Jesus, that you're in a personal relationship with him and so I ask you are you a person who knows that you have been reconciled to God by the blood of Jesus on the cross do you know that that's the case for you have you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior are you walking in the newness of his resurrection life have you gone to him in prayer to acknowledge your sinfulness before Him and your need of the forgiveness that only He has provided. If you are a person here this morning who says, 
No, I guess I would say that I'm not walking through my life in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But I think I would like to, to, to do that, to, to have that relationship. If that's you, would you bow your head with me right now? Let's all bow our heads. And would you pray with me this way? God in heaven, I realize that I have sought treasure and meaning and satisfaction in the things of this world. Whether material objects or people or selfish ambition or otherwise. I have not, oh God, I have not sought the deep satisfaction that I crave in you. I've turned to cisterns with muddy water instead of you who are the fountain of living water. I have sinned against you. And I ask your forgiveness. And I realize that my forgiveness has been provided on the cross of your son, Jesus Christ, his body bleeding and dying in my place. When I know that I deserve that death for my sin. Forgive me. And now I receive the crucified and risen Jesus as my Savior and my Lord. This is a new day for me, Lord. From this point forward, I walk with Jesus, following Him, listening to Him in His Word, obeying Him, treasuring Him and enjoying Him, and fellowshipping with His body, the church. God, I pray that you would help me to engage my new life in Jesus Christ and to learn my kingdom purposes and to discern my gifts. Thank you, Lord, for saving me and setting me free from my sin. And Lord, for those of us who have recognized this morning that somewhere back there, Somewhere back there, there's a charcoal fire still burning. We pray. Come, Lord, and help us. Restore us and rehabilitate us and blot out our shame and set us back on the path of life like you did so mercifully and so amazingly with Peter. We thank you, our God, that you continue to pursue us even after we've messed up that your grace refuses to leave us alone, that you will never leave us or forsake us, though we may forsake you. Bless you and thank you for Easter. May the risen one who takes nobodies and makes them somebodies, who takes the ridiculous and turns it into the sublime, who raises those from the dustbins and crowns them princes and princesses, cause you to prosper in every good work and to increase in the knowledge of God. Amen.